This is Minnesota Liberty, brought to you by the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, bringing you peace, prosperity, and freedom from the land of 10,000 lakes. Welcome back to Minnesota Liberty. My name is James. Uh, I have a very special guest tonight, um, and you'll notice that there's only one of me, so you might be able to guess who it is. But before we get into the guest, let me um, tell you about the affiliate meetings and other events that are coming up for the Libertarian Party of Minnesota. So I am streaming and recording on the 3rd of May, 2023. So coming up this month, we've got the CD4 Liberty Meetup at Stout's Pub, and I believe that's in St. Paul. CD2 on the 11th is at Triggers in Prior Lake. And then on the 15th, we've got our monthly executive committee meeting, uh, which is open to all party members. We meet via Zoom and at the office in um, Golden Valley. Uh, and then finally, on the 18th, a big event being hosted by the women's affiliate of, uh, God, what are those two counties? Goodhue and Dakota County. I'm so sorry to <laughs> that affiliate. I can never get the name right. It is the Libertarian Women of Dakota and Goodhue, Goodhue County's affiliate. And they're hosting a women's health and data privacy uh, event featuring Twyla Brace, who is a an expert on both of those subjects. I'm going to be there live and in person, and I encourage everyone else to turn out if you can. Um, that is on May 18th at the Hastings American Legion Post 47. Um, for times and maps and all that stuff, head over to lpmn.org slash events. Uh, and that page is kept updated. So, you know, if you didn't hear your affiliate, that just means that we haven't posted it yet, um, but it'll be there. So keep an eye on that page. Once again, lpmn.org slash events. And so without further ado, let me bring on the guest for the evening, who is typically my co-host, uh, or really like the main host of the show, um, and uh, I'm the co-host, I guess. <laughs> anyway, uh, my guest is Rebecca Whiting, Vice Chair, Madam Vice Chair. How's it going? Good to see you. <laughs> good, good. How are you? Good, good. Um, all right, so we are kicking off Veterans Week or veterans like month, I guess, or a veteran series. There's going to be several yep. uh, vets that you're going to be interviewing, but I wanted to get you uh, in front of the camera for the first one um, because you are a vet in your own right. You and your husband, Keith, both. Uh, mm -hmm. Keith wasn't available tonight. Otherwise, we might have had him on. Yeah. Um, so what branch did you serve in? Uh, the you? Army. Mm -hmm. So active duty Army and National Guard. I did both. Oh, nice. Um Thank you for your service. Do we still say that? Is that still a thing? I don't know. It's it's always okay. weird. So I just yeah, it does. Uh, you know, one time I was at the airport and uh, this very very like just ancient man in a wheelchair and a Korea hat was coming through security, and this other very old woman came up to him and thanked him for his service. And I was like, man, like that 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 goes way way back. Like that's before my parents were born. Um, yeah, Korea War was a long time ago. How so? How does it? I don't know. I've always been like the the kind of libertarian who never never has had any sort of action at all, and so I smugly would be like, oh, you know, I don't support the troops, I because uh, they're they're just all part of the machine. Um, in fact, I got into a big fight with Bull Johnson once. Um, it it almost it almost turned into like a really big thing uh, over the term murder cult, which. Uh, mm. I, I don't know if it was coined by Shane Hazel, but he uses it a lot. He was a, he's a libertarian down in Georgia. Um, and he's also a veteran. How, what do you think about the, the kind of like 
the rhetoric that comes out of libertarian circles as it pertains to military and war and things like that. Do you think that, do you think that we can be a little too harsh or are you on board with that? Um, I mean, I guess if the term specifically the term murder cult would imply that people are joining to murder. So mm. I would stray away from that because most people join for, you know, this, a long list of reasons and that's, uh, never one of them. <laughs> so the, uh, you know, they, they're looking for stability. They're looking for a way out of their hometown. They're looking for, mm. you know, something like college opportunity. They come from poor backgrounds or we come from, I guess, cause I'm part of that veterans in it. And a lot of mm. veterans come from Southern States because, you know, there's a high level of poverty down there. Um, so, and that's, I'm from Mississippi. That's why I joined, you know, there wasn't, when I graduated high school, there wasn't a lot of opportunity. There wasn't anything, especially as a female I could do outside of like, um, you know, working in a, like a fast food place. I didn't have family support, that kind of thing. So, um, at one point, you know, when I joined, it was, it was a matter of, it wasn't, it was no longer a matter of why I should, but why I shouldn't, um, but back then too, there was no, there were no wars. That was before 9-11. Mm -hmm. That was before Iraq, you know? So this was, it was just a job you were going to do and they were going to yeah. teach you and give you the skills and that kind of stuff. And I was going to do my time in and see where that led. I really enjoyed it. And so I, once I left basic training and AI, I just kind of decided I was going to be a lifer. <laughs> like, yeah, those, those terms and mm -hmm. all those kinds of things, you know, there's just, um, there's people join for a variety of reasons. It's usually in good faith. So when the yeah. things that happen that cause, you know, the event in Afghanistan, that there's the reason that this influx of veterans into the Libertarian Party, it's because that we joined on good faith. And it was the government who used that, used our, you know, our kind of naive mentality and do good things. Um, uh, yeah. They used that to their advantage and they betrayed the trust, you know, so. It, is, it, does, it has always seemed a little bit strange to me that, uh, that so many vets come from the South um, and that that the South is kind of like the hotbed of nationalism when, you know, prior to the Civil War, it was, you know, I, there was no there, there was no nationalism in the South because they saw they saw that the country such as it was as sort of like a bunch of, you know, just literally independent states um, and nationalism yeah. mm -hmm. didn't really come like into that, picture. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I, it always seems like a weird, a weird like dissonance there. Like the, it's, it's kind of like the, the mm -hmm. don't tread on me right next to the, the, the blue, the blue line flag. Um, yeah. Do you think well, I mean, from? when you, yeah, when you have, you know, like a people that are typically very poor, there's not, like I said, there's not a lot of opportunity in the South. I mean, just now are we starting to see. Like, um, you know, cities, there, I mean, you have cities like Atlanta um, in Georgia, and you have um, some bigger cities, New Orleans, for instance, in Louisiana. And that's where I came from, is right on the Mississippi, Louisiana coast, very, very far south. But you know, this, it's a, 
it's hard to describe just the level. I knew people that basically lived in shacks in high school. Like that was, that was their reality. And that wasn't a long time ago, like 20, less than 25 years ago. So I grew up with people that got on the bus who lived in, you know, just these run down houses that didn't have anything. They might have had three different sets of clothes. I, I knew a girl who had three different sets of clothes and she just alternated her clothes. <laughs> like, you, you know, she had, there was, they had so little. So when you have people that just have very little material possessions, they have very little opportunity for the future. I mean, all they have left is their pride. So that's, that's got to be based off of something um, in the South. That's typically based off of, you know, that they're, that they're Southern. <laughs> so there is a lot of national pride in the South. And um, I mean, yeah. I still feel like I'm, I'm never going to call myself a Minnesotan because I'm a Southerner. <laughs> so yeah. That's just, well, that, yeah. No, I'm that's a Texan. And like, you know, I love Minnesota and like, I, I really don't like, I don't have any plans to move or anything like that, but I don't consider myself a Minnesotan really. Like, no. I'm a like I'm a Texan, and I don't think I don't think Minnesotans really grasp that that sort of like no. uh, that pride of place that 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 people in the South specifically have. Um, oh, like, yeah. and I don't call myself a Southerner either. With, yeah, you would have to come to terms with being a Yankee, and that's that's yeah. basically a derogatory term in the South uh -huh. still. So I mean, that's not going to happen, you know. Yeah, I guess so. It's it's a very interesting dynamic. And and the other thing is, though, like when people find out that I'm from Texas up here uh, and th this is like we're not trying to shit on Minnesota. Like this is this is home. It's just not our native home, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, no, it is. Yeah, I'm established um, here. You know, this is the way it is. Yeah. When people find out where I'm from originally, they 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 almost act with like sympathy. They're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like I, I, you got here as soon as you could. Huh? <laughs> I like, I don't, like, I don't know. No. Like uh you no, were... don't be sorry for me i am sorry for you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you've never ex you've never experienced it um and you know i mean southern hospitality is preferable to minnesota nice in my opinion although i, I have oh, yeah. a feeling minnesotans like i have a lot of minnesotan friends who you know they'll they'll travel down there and, and experience it and they're like oh my god it's so passive aggressive i hate it and i'm like what are you talking about that's what this is um yeah <laughs> bless your but heart people there will like just that you know if they're if they're feeling something they're just gonna say it out loud and you mm -hmm. you always know where people stand because that's just part of the culture yeah. and they expect you to be exactly like that back to them so it's not offensive just being a you know intentional and in what you say and mm -hmm. it's not picking a fight it's just how it is <laughs> uh kevin says minnesotans don't know good barbecue which nice. is that is true. Although um, I have found a, a, a couple of really good places. Um, there's a place up in Champlin that has, a, there's another, they have another location in Minneapolis. God, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um, but anyway, it's, it's real good. It's actually right by Nate Atkins house. Uh, if anybody knows where he lives down in South Minneapolis. Um, uh, man, if I could remember it, I, I would, I would, I would say the name anyway. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there is that. There's like the culture. There's the food. There's the the, the barbecue, like Kevin mentioned. Um, so how did you end up in Minnesota? I guess uh, you know, as a southerner. <laughs> yeah, the only way that that would happen is buying somebody from Minnesota. And yeah. um, 
into that saying, I am never moving to Minnesota. And so then, you know, <laughs> that is the way the universe works. And all of a sudden you find yourself in Minnesota. That's mm -hmm. the only way I, everybody I know who's moved up here has moved up here and like is established here is, is here for their other half, you know? So <laughs> that's, I met somebody in the army and I didn't even know Minnesotans existed, honestly. Um, it was never oh, a state. See, I had that, family up here. Like I used to come up here on vacation. That I had taken well. into consideration. Yeah. Well, I'd never been north of the Mason-Dixon line, honestly, before I met somebody Holy from God. Minnesota. And, yeah. yeah. Very. <laughs> um, all right. So back on the back on the veteran stuff, I guess we we can we can sit here and, and do bios forever. But uh, so let's. Yeah. So you know, 9/11 was obviously a line of demarcation for U.S. foreign policy, for war and peace, for you know, just sort of the nature of the military. What what happened after 9/11? Like, what happened on 9/11? What was that like? Where were you? And like, what? Uh, oh, did you know that everything was about to change? Like, was it evident? Oh yeah, that was. Um, so I was still in the National Guard. I had joined the Mississippi National Guard first, and I'd finished all my training. I was back at my unit. We were doing our, you know, the National Guard thing, which is once a month, two weeks out of the year. And um, I, when I had left, like I said, when I left basic training in AIT and I'd done all my training, I knew that I had really enjoyed the training. I enjoyed the structure. I had enjoyed feeling like I was part of something important, you know, um, and that was a significant part of what I was missing, especially at the time I was only 19. Um, and so when 9-11 happened, I was in college and I had an early class that morning. So it was an eight o'clock class. And, um, and I was playing soccer in college too. So I'd been up for a while. We'd done all our, we did all this training in the morning and then we went to class and um, went to my eight o'clock class and sat down. We were supposed to take a test that day. And somebody came in right before the instructor closed the door and was like, planes, uh, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. And I immediately got this like gut feeling in my stomach. Like, it's hard to describe, you know, but just that, you, you know, um, when, when you know internally that something is very, very wrong and something has changed and something's going on. And I didn't even finish the test. I just wrote my name on it, filled out because I couldn't I couldn't get past that feeling, turned it in and went back to my dorm room. And everybody else there didn't have an early morning class. They had the TV on. Um, and right as I walked in the set and uh, I just I don't know, I just knew that that's, you know, once is a coincidence uh, twice as a plan, you know, yeah. so, um, something was going on. And then Bush at the time came on and said, uh, we're at a state of war. And I immediately knew what that meant for me because I'd already been through basic training. I'd already been through AIT, um, the advanced individual training and part, part of my advanced individual training. So the AIT was, um, I went to be a medic. So as a combat medic, that was a lot of our training was, um, you know, if, if the medics are busy, you know, things are going very wrong. And a lot of our training was around scenarios and, you know, these um, just the worst kind of things that you could imagine. That's what that's what we had to be prepared for. 
but at the time we just, I didn't, you know, there was no war. And so I having had just gone through that and hearing that on the TV, I was like, this is it. I just know like, you know, this is, this is a big deal and here it is. And I didn't know joining that that's what was going to happen, obviously. But, um, you know, it, that, I mean, just hearing those words and here and watching the second plane and watching Eric, it's just, I mean, it's a, like a feeling that you can't, you know, you can't ever separate yourself from. So those, the intensity of what happened and everything and what it meant for me specifically and knowing how it was going to impact my future. I, I instantly knew that. So, um, yeah, that was, that was like a, you know, you know, your life is going one direction and then something like that happens yeah. at moments there, everything's different. What, uh, so, and then what did you do? What, like, well, cause I was in the national guard. Um, yeah. you know, our, at that time. So I had a boyfriend at the time who was active duty and he was in ranger battalion and ranger battalion has they're not special forces they're special operations so but they're on regular rotation for being able to respond quickly it happens you know like like 911 and so they were on the highest they were on they were basically on call when 911 happened uh, it's called RF1 and um and they immediately left they just they packed up their stuff and left and so for several months, I didn't know where he was. I didn't know what was going on, you know, because they're, um, uh, it's what the army calls OPSEC operational security, um, means that there has to be secrecy and there has to be, you know, no, um, you know, any kind of flow of communication has to happen through secure channels. And the only people that were allowed to, maybe have a little information about where their soldiers were, were the people that were like directly related wives, you know, that kind of stuff, which I wasn't, I was just a girlfriend. So, you know, he left, he, that changed. And, um, and then, but as far as the rest of the army, um, the bases changed. You used to be able to just drive straight on to an army base. Uh, when I was in training, you could, you just drove straight on. There was nobody stopping you. After that, they started checking IDs and checking all the stuff, and they set up checkpoints everywhere on the army bases. Um, and then, but, you know, until Iraq happened, the rest of the army didn't really get, the rest of the military didn't really get, there wasn't a lot of presence on the ground in Afghanistan. It was just kind of, it took off a little slow. For me, I joined, it was my opportunity to get out of my National Guard contract and go active duty. National Guard contracts last eight years. Uh, and they, because of 9-11, they were letting people cut their contracts short to go active duty. And so I took up that opportunity and by, um, so that was in September, by February, I was active duty and stationed in Georgia. And so, um, and I don't, so I don't really know how like military works even. Yeah. Um, when you go active duty, like, did you, were you automatically a medic or did you like have to yeah. redo training or? No, cause the army national guard is still army. It's just a different, it's basically comes down to funding. So 
The funding for National Guard is mostly through the states. They're controlled by the governor. That's why you have the Mississippi, Louisiana National Guard. It's all, you know, state specific. There's also an Army Reserve, which is federal. Um, but that's and that's different because that's but then so active duty, that's the reserves, active duty army, but it's all army, right? Basic training, AI, um, all your job training, all that kind of stuff. That's all still the same. So how long before you were deployed? Um, see, that was February of 2002 is when I went active duty. Iraq kicked off. March Jan by July of 2004, I was in Iraq. Okay. And so were you just kind of sitting there waiting until, until that happened or, uh, um, like what, what was like, what was life like in the interim? Yeah, I got stationed at a, what they call a medic unit. So, um, medics, not only are you on the line, um, with, uh, field, field brigades. So people, your brigades that, so the way the structure is, is that you have, you have a, a different variety of different types of units. You have your brigades that go out and like their infantry brigades or their armor brigades or, um, um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and then you have brigades that are for training. Um, and then you also have hospital units and the hospital units mostly maintain as for a medic anyways. Uh, hospital units maintain like the army hospitals on the bases. We um, staffed the uh, what was called a TMC, a troop medical clinic for training units. And that's what I did. That that was, so that was my first job active duty was it at a troop medical clinic on Fort Benning, Georgia for airborne, airborne school. Um, we did airborne school, um, uh, officer candidate school, so any of the um, types of schools that were on main post at Fort Benning, and there was a lot of them, um, but that's, that was what I, we did medical support for those schools. And so for the first, so when I went active duty until I went to um, Iraq, that's what I was doing. It was at a medic unit, taking care of injuries and um, people that were training and gotten hurt or sick or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. All right. Uh, I'm just going to real quick. We've been having some technical difficulties that I've been clicking around on. I hope my mic wasn't okay. picking that up too much, but I apologize to the people watching on Facebook. I had to, I had to restart the feed because it was airing out. Um, YouTube seems to be going smoothly though. So that's good. Uh, I think this is like the first or second episode that we've live streamed. We've, we've always pre-recorded them and then uh, streamed later. So, you know, bear with us on the, on the technical stuff. Um, okay. Uh, so I would imagine that being a medic in the army in the middle of a violent conflict, um, you see some you see some pretty crazy shit. Uh, do you have any Do you have any stories that you're okay telling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, let's see. So, um, when I went to Iraq, it was july 2000 well july 2004 i actually went to korea first and then the unit that i went to in korea was tasked to go to iraq so i went to korea immediately turned around um and went to iraq through there so we got tasked to go to the al anbar province in iraq which is um uh ramadi fallujah um habaniya 
So there's like all these major cities in Iraq that um, you may or may not be familiar with, but it's called the Al-Anbar province. And that was the hot spot when we went. So if I've you listened. remember, yeah. I've listened to enough that, Scott Horton to recognize these names. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's where we went. We went to Ramadi in 2004. Um, Ramadi was a city who, that just didn't have, there, there was no control. There was no, um, there was, I mean, that we, there was a presence, we were there, but it wasn't, it was just, um, I don't know how to describe it. Like you didn't, the wild, I don't know, the wild west of Iraq. So, uh, there wasn't, we didn't have any control of the city whatsoever. Um, we also, uh, that meant that when, when things happened, there was a lot of stuff happening. Um, so prior to us going there and I, I remember seeing this on like, I don't know, news channel, CNN or something that they, in Fallujah, they had been attacking, um, contractors and like dragging their bodies through the streets, that kind of stuff. We got there right after that happened. Ramadi's just, I think it's just west of Fallujah. It's just, but like sister city. So we were there when the Battle of Fallujah happened. And when the Battle of Fallujah happened, we were prepared to take in mass casualties. We were attached to a Marine division. Um, and after the Battle of Fallujah, and I believe that was in November, December of 2004 is when that happened. So our level of which was already pretty high, but our level of like casualty rates and incidences and firefights increased after the Battle of Fallujah. Um, our aid station had the casualties for the entire theater. Our brigade had the highest rate of casualties for the entire theater. I think it might've been throughout the entirety of the wars, both wars, Iraq and Afghanistan from beginning to end. Like we went in at combat strength, we came home um, under combat strength. We were being supplemented by other um, units to keep our mission going because we'd lost so many people. Jeez. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of things that happened from that. Um, I'm trying to, I don't know, it's something that's, I mean, we, so things that they use a lot of are, uh, or they did, were improvised explosive devices. Um, I think I might be having connection issues also, but improvised explosive devices could be buried in the roads. They could be um, put into a pile of garbage set aside, you know, some, something that could be easily hidden. And then they could either be detonated by like a timer or by a cell phone or by infrared. If you drove by, they blew up. It was just they were, there was a wide variety of um, what they could do. Um, and that was their main, that was the main thing that we saw uh, injury wise. We saw a lot of gunshot wounds. We had one, I guess, actually, this is, this is pretty significant. We had um, a sniper and we had this glass factory right outside of um, our camp that was, uh, as I, I, I'm pretty sure got was blown up after we left because um, it was a, it was an issue. <laughs> but we had a sniper that was hiding in the glass factory. Um, but you could see from the glass factory our entire camp from that because it was up high and 
there. I mean, there's nothing out there, you know, it's desert. So mm -hmm. there's, you know, nothing to break the line of sight. And this sniper was getting one person a day on our base, uh, oftentimes in a, through the, like, cause the Humvee would have like the um, combat glass. Once we got up armor, we're only, the windows were only like this big. She could hit somebody through that window while the Humvee was moving, even because you had to wear your Kevlar when you're in a moving vehicle. That's just an army rule. And it was enough to be able to go through the Kevlar one shot, one person a day. They always died. They never lived. Um, so, and like I said, it was in an, it was a it was a woman that was doing it. It was a they ended up getting her um, oh. Chechnyan. So not even Iraqi. She was a Chechnyan. Um, yeah. And so was, was, I mean, that were, were, were Chechnya and Iraq allied at that point, or was she just like a? No, no, they were mercenaries. They were being paid to be there. That's interesting. What about our use of mercenaries? I, I always heard that, like, you know, Dick Cheney's company, Halliburton, like supplied a ton of our of our fighting troops uh, as mercenaries. I don't know if that's yeah. true or not. Well, this was so. Le, well, let me let me let me add a little bit of context. So. Back then, I was like way on the left, and mm -hmm. the left-wing anti-war movement has just as many crazy conspiracy theories as the libertarian. Uh, oh, I'm sure <laughs> movement in general, basically. Um, so, like you know, Halliburton was the devil back then, uh, according to mm -hmm. you know left-wing politics. Uh, so that that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, I'm guessing there's a little bit there's a little bit more uh, nuance to what they were doing over there. But can you can you maybe set the record straight if you know? Um, so, I mean, my perspective is limited because of, you know, our situation, our circumstances. I, we pretty much are, who we worked with was usually kept within our own companies and our own units and our own brigade. Um, we didn't get tasked out to, uh, you know, for other missions. So like special forces had their own mission in Iraq. Um, even the Rangers, they had their own mission. We had our own mission. We are attached to a Marine division. And they, every, so it's a being there. Um, however, though, because we are medics, uh, you know, that's kind of like this universal job. Um, I don't know specifically. So people are going to be very, like I said, I mentioned operational security earlier. You know, they're going to be very cautious about what they're saying and who they're saying it to. Um. I know that, well, and it was also, Iraq was a NATO thing, right? So we also saw troops from other countries. Um, but I know KBR was uh, who ran our DFAC, our dining yes. facility that, on Ramadi. KBR, Cal and, it's uh, Kellogg Brown and Was Ruth. KBR at they Halliburton? Yeah, they're a subsidiary of, Cal of Halliburton. It's all coming back. That's what I thought. Yeah. So KBR, they did run our, they ran all like the, um, the defect, they ran the, the cleanup crews. They ran all that kind of stuff, who it was. Um, and then what's a, as far as like, oh, what is defect? You've mentioned that twice. So I want to get the, the definition. Dining facility. The army is notorious with acronyms. Boring. <laughs> why say something I was like, so, why say like all the words like, can... yeah I like it okay so 
Um, yeah, but we, I mean, we, because we were the aid station and we were the, the central aid station for the area, we saw a lot of people from a variety of backgrounds um, who had different missions. I remember one time and they were, if I was having to guess who they were, I would say some sort of um, uh, um, like a, a CIA type, but you know, okay, so MI6, MI7, whatever it is, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. They drove up, we got, a lot of times we, you know, we had a radio at our aid station and sometimes we'd get information, sometimes we wouldn't, sometimes we got limited information, sometimes we got accurate. I mean, it just, it, you know, so, um, but most people, when they came to our aid station, drove up in military type vehicles and these guys didn't, they drove up in a little, which was very typical, you know, they all, that's, they all, there was a lot of Toyota trucks and uh jumped out and they'd been hit by an ied and were coming to our aid station to get checked out and i was sitting at our like our smoking pit and i was a smoker back then and um they're they come out of the aid station and they're you know they're I mean, you can kind of tell the cargo pants the facial hair the you know you can kind of tell they have what they look like and what their background is but they had and i was like so uh you know, where are you guys from? Because <laughs> I'm while they're checking all their equipment, and I'm like, this isn't typical army standard equipment, you know, like they were like pulling things out and like looking, making sure it was all fine. I was like, hey, I'm looking at stuff, I'm like, this looks like something, some of this looks like stuff straight out of a James Bond movie. And the English accents, and that's just what it reminded me of. And um, I asked him, I was like, where are you guys from? And he was like, Oh, we're generator mechanics. And I was like, mm, mm, I don't think you're generator mechanics. <laughs> So it's true. <laughs> That's funny, man. But, I would love to, I would love to like know what their real, what their real mission was. That's, uh, that's oh, really yeah. interesting. Someone, yeah. Someone I mean, should... if I had to guess, I would say something, some sort of like CIA type, but obviously yeah. not American. Interesting. So what does, what do the intelligence agencies do in the middle of a war zone? And, and like, what would the CIA do versus Army Intelligence? Or is that classified? Uh, you know, well, I mean, maybe it is to somebody, but I guess I don't really, I was a medic, so, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. that's not my job. But um, I did have a security call get mission updates or that kind of stuff I was allowed to go into our, um, our, uh, training operational center, or what we call the talk. Um, and to be able to like see the maps and see when they had all their stuff out. So I could go and get that information and I could go to the briefings, um, for things that were starting to like change or be different because I had a security clearance. It wasn't a very big security clearance. It was just enough to like, be able to like be the person that went into the room, but that was about it, you know? Um, so for military intelligence, that kind of stuff, I mean, I honestly, I don't know. Cause that's not something we did a lot of. We were mostly dealing with, you know, the things that happened immediately and, uh, just responding to the situation or the moment and didn't have a yeah. lot of hand in planning and that kind of stuff. That makes sense. Um, well, tell me about medic training. What, what, uh, so like, you're not a doctor obviously, but no. like, um, what are you doing in medic as a medic um, that like, say, 
I mean, is it, is it just similar to a paramedic in civilian life or? Cause I think you're doing kind paramedic of. training right now too. Yeah. Well, EMT, I'm, I, EMT, sorry. Uh, I get, the, yeah, I know no, those are different and I, yeah. <laughs> I have a friend who's an EMT and he hates it when I call him a paramedic. So. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a little yeah. different. There's, you know, different levels. The training that I'm currently going through is an EMT. When you're in the, when you're an army medic or required to have an EMT license. Um, and I did have one after I got out of the army and I went through two deployments to Iraq. So I was in Ramadi the first time, Baghdad the second time. And I went to Baghdad in 06 and 07 during the surge. That's where I was at. And then, um, so after I got out of the army, I was just burnt out and I let my license go, you know, I just, mm -hmm. I had no interest in using it and didn't really see a future in being part of a, um, having any, anything to do with medical, although I do enjoy it, but I was just, you know, like Iraq had been too much in a lot of aspects. So I was ready to just step away for good. Um, but uh, the difference between an army medic and a paramedic is that an army medic has a lot more freedom. <laughs> so um, we are allowed to do almost anything. Um, we operated in our aid station. We operated under the guidance of um, doctors or physicians assistants. And they were the, um, you know, the people in charge um, because they had the, you know, the highest training. However, out in the field or out in the streets or out in the city or, you know, being on the line. Um, and that was my second job. My sec my During our second deployment, that's what I did. I wasn't in an aid station. I was in a truck. We were out and we were constantly doing um, missions back and forth and in the cities. We we're out almost every night. Um, and, you know, when something happens... And suddenly you find yourself, you are the person with the highest level of training. So right. you, you do what you have to do. And there's just, there's no limits. Like if you, if you find yourself in this situation, you know, nobody's going to come and check your certification, you know? Right. So um, we had a lot more opportunity to learn things and do things because there was the possibility that we might have to use them. And we might have to use it independently. And so we had to know what we were doing independently. Yeah. Um, certifications so, be damned, basically. So were you doing like minor surgeries and stuff like that even? Um, I, in our aid station, we did chest tubes, central lines. Um, we did have to deal with uh, amputations, um, a lot of, you know, severe injuries. Um, if there was anything that needed to be done, that was more complex than that because our, our purpose was we were an echelon too. So the way the medics, the medical like um, hierarchy is basically like a line medic is an echelon one. Mm -hmm. And then they are like a paramedic or an EMT. You know, your job is just to stabilize your casualty and get them to the next um, group of people who have more opportunity to save them as fast as you can and mm -hmm. keep them alive. And so there, the, the aid stations were echelon twos. Um, and that's where our doctors and our physicians assistants were. That were the, that's where we took our aid. And then they would um, stabilize them further. So if they had like a collapsed lungs or they were bleeding out or they needed immediate, you know, medications, pain treatment, that kind of stuff. Um, burns, we, we saw a lot of burn victims. Um, that was where they did 
further help stabilize them. But their the goal in the aid station was still to get people stabilized as fast as we can, or we could, and get them put on a helicopter to get them sent up to the next echelon, which also had more capabilities. Um, so in our situation, there were a few times, one in particular I can think of, and this kind of, I don't know, you find some humor in this story, because um, <laughs> it didn't involve American troops, it involved Iraqi troops. Um, and I don't know, it's silly. Anyways, we had, and it was during, in the middle of this intense sandstorm, so no helicopters were coming in. No, nothing was landing on our LZ. There was there was no movement at all because the sandstorm was just. I mean, you know, you, you could you couldn't breathe, you couldn't see, you couldn't do anything, right? And for whatever reason, the sergeant major to the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police chief had a misfire in the arms room and ended up getting shot with an AK like seven oh, or eight times. Um, so they bring him to our aid station. I can't remember which one got shot. What, if it was the Iraqi police guy or the army, <laughs> Iraqi army guy, one of them got shot up and he needed, he, what he really needed was to be sent on a helicopter because, you know, he had intensive injuries, intense mm -hmm. injuries. He was in critical um, situation. But we couldn't get a helicopter, you know, we couldn't get anybody to land, we're not going to get anybody to go. And so we actually called uh, the special forces docs who I and actually, so, well, I'll say that in a second. Um, the special forces docs have a lot more capability, they have a lot more training, they have a lot more resources. They have a lot more experience than even army doctors do. Mm -hmm. And they called the special forces docs in and the special forces docs did surgery on him right there at our aid station um, in the middle of the sandstorm because we couldn't move him. And then we ended up having to transport him um, on the ground instead of by a helicopter uh, with a field ambulance. Um, anyways, it was a mess, <laughs> but um and I don't remember what the question was actually, but I think I I think I just asked you for story. Oh yeah, um, okay. So there, there's the story. Yeah, is so. Was that so? Were these enemy combatants that you were that you were treating there, or was no, this like after the no, fall of Saddam were, and uh, now no, you guys are fighting the other? The Iraqi army was a, an ally. We were training them. Yeah, that's okay. That's um, what I thought. Yeah. And the Iraqi police were supposed to be allies also, but they were notoriously corrupt. I mean, oh, every sure. time we had a major incident, it was an Iraqi police checkpoint. So that's, yeah. you know, take that for what it's worth. But So you are like famously the mom of a whole bunch of kids. Um, any chance any of them are going to join the service? You know, my oldest was planning on joining the, uh, the National Guard. Uh, and she was 16 when 2020 happened. And then through all the riots in Minneapolis um, and all that kind of stuff and seeing how the National Guard was going to be used, you know, and just called yeah. and it was like, mm, no, nah, never mind. And I was like, you know, that's, that's probably good at this point. And then there was all the, you know, the forced vaccination um, and all that kind of stuff that the military was... Um, you know, that was the situation, the military, if you're in the military, you don't get an option about vaccines. 
-hmm. they just tell you what you're going to get. And so because of all that, she decided not to join, which was very glad she didn't. So there's a different time. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was really crazy. But thankfully I was down in Texas visiting my family that weekend. Um, It also, it happened to be the weekend of the Libertarian National Convention, um, which was supposed to take place in Austin, but uh, it took place over Zoom instead. So my partner and I were down in Dallas um, and I was watching the convention on Zoom and because I was a delegate and he was watching the riots and everything on like all the different Facebook live streams and stuff. Uh, And one of our like, close you know neighbors in our in our neighborhood she got like she was she was just out on her porch trying to see what was going on and the national guard was like ordering her back in the house and like you know threatening to fire beanbags at her and stuff um i you know i can't imagine being forced to do that uh you know and let alone kill people i i just i don't know if i could do it um do they like how do they how do they desensitize you how do they make it so that it's possible for you to you know, shoot beanbags at your neighbors or, you know, kill Iraqis? Um, there's just this mental, you know, a lot of it is training. So when yeah. you're, you know, you're doing the same steps over and over and over again. And this was especially even as a medic too. So, I mean, this applies to a whole lot of different types of scenarios. Um, but part of being trained in something is that, you know, you're, you've done it so much makes the green grass grow, uh, blood and guts. That's actually, that's the answer to that question. Um, so, you know, you, you, anyways, you're doing the training over and over and over again. And so when you're in the situation that you have to use your weapon or you have to just throw a tourniquet on because blood squirting everywhere mm-hmm. or your, you know, whatever it is, you're because of the level of, um, you know, like just, you're all hyped up about it and all that kind of stuff. Your training kicks in. You don't even think about it. You just do it. So if you're in a situation where you have to use your weapon, you just do, I mean, it comes down to them or you and people's survival instincts kick in, your training kicks in. You just react. I mean, it's just at that point, it comes down to muscle memory. Mm -hmm. The the people who don't pull the trigger. Yeah, that's really what it is the people who don't pull the trigger and pause to think about it, they're the ones that become casualties themselves. Right. So Mm -hmm. you're already in that situation. You just, it's either them or you, and you got to figure that out. So. Did, uh, so you mentioned, uh, just a couple of minutes ago that you were kind of, you know, stationed in like the overnight shift driving around a city. I'm just kind of imagining you like patrolling these seemingly empty (laughs) streets like you know who knows what's on top of that building over like i get nervous driving around minneapolis after dark like i can't imagine being in a war zone after dark yeah uh was that just completely nerve-wracking or was it just that that's my job i'm gonna go do it um you know when you're doing it every night it's a little different um yeah and so there's a saying in the army that complacency kills uh you're not supposed to be comfortable with it because when you're comfortable with it, then you start, you know, you start not paying as close of attention. You start dropping the ball. You just get relaxed. And that's when things happen. So what you have to really do is just, you know, this is the situation. These are, you know, these are the things that could harm us, basically. 
and you really just got to overcome, um, you know, that mentally and still be able to, you know, do what you have to do, still be out there. Um, but knowing the risks and being able to be okay with them. So. Um, and then I guess just to kind of start closing it out, how have you used your military training um, as, you know, as a mom, as a homesteader, as an activist, uh, as vice chair of the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, if you have, um, you know, like, how has that, how has that translated into your real life? Um, oh, did you say as, as a mom too? Yeah, everything. Uh, uh, so <laughs> I kind of, I don't mean to do this. I don't think I mean to, but you know, I mean, I have a lot of kids and yeah. it's, it comes down to, um, uh, their, their good behavior or my mental stability. Right. So, um, I just kind of, you know, run, a, run the house. Like, <laughs> I don't want to say like a platoon because <laughs> they're not soldiers, but you know, like if I, if I tell them to do something, I expect, you know, this is the way we're going to do it. And it, you know, you, deal with kids a little different than you do soldiers because you know it's different sure. you know you're firm you're and some of my kids actually will tell you that i'm scary i don't i don't think i'm scary but um <laughs> i don't think you're scary it, but there's i think i think is you know partially it's just like this level of um you know we don't want to we're going to do what mom said because if we don't we know you know we're going to get in trouble or you know whatever it is like that so um and, you know, just this, I don't know, this boldness and just, you know, I, I guess I'm not sure. You know, when you're, you know, you have a job and, you know, you're like for, I guess for the Libertarian Party, we have, we, and I call it a mission and this may be a bad word in the Libertarian Party, but it is, it's, it's like a mission. And yeah. um, the hurdles that we are facing as far as like, the government oppression and government authoritarianism is um, significant. Those are all very large hurdles. And a weak person is going to um, fall and crumble in face of that mm -hmm. adversity. So uh, I guess if anything, just taking the experience of, you know, overcoming them, um, overcoming them mentally, physically, you know, whatever it is, and still being able to stand up and confront them and, you know, deal with it. That's, that's probably one of the things that I've learned is just be able to mentally deal with hard situations. And I mean, for the Libertarian Party, because of what we're facing, that's, there's going to be a lot of that. So, mm -hmm. and the more effective that we get, the more that we'll see. I've always, uh, you, you like, you hear the phrase, you got to do what you got to do, like, a lot, um, or at least you used to. I guess people don't really say it as much this, these days. But, you know, you, uh, and this this is this is just me kind of fanboying, really, but you <laughs> are, the, the like, the embodiment of you got to do what you got to do. Like, every time, every time I open Facebook, for instance, you've got a different thing that you've just done. You know, whether it's, whether it's running for school board or delivering a calf, you know, 11 months pregnant and in a freezing muddy, like 
you know, emergency situation where you can't get a hold of your husband. Like just all of these, all of these, your crazy neighbor, like, you know, I mean, you kept it peaceful. You didn't, you didn't lose your cool against him. And, you know, eventually the solution, the problem solved itself because you kind of just knew it would. Um, it's just a, it's just a very admirable quality. And I, I figure, I figure, you know, maybe, maybe being raised in a, you know, kind of poor community must have had, uh, must have had that kind of effect on you. But also I would imagine that the, the military training and probably personality and everything um, just sort of all came together to make this kind of superhero of a person, um, which is cool. It's great. I'm glad that we have you. Uh, is there any, are there any words of wisdom or, or any things that you want to plug uh, before we, before we kind of close out? No, I don't have any words of wisdom, but um, actually next week's uh, and who I had intended on having this week. And I'm actually the backup because I, I screwed up the I know. schedule. See, I tried to, I tried, um, to, I tried to sell this earlier as this was all planned out, but we, <laughs> we, we just decided 10 minutes ago that you're going to be the guest. <laughs> I know. And I was actually trying to avoid this because it was like, oh, there's all these, you know, we have so many veterans in the Libertarian Party of Minnesota and they all have like stories and, you know, things and that are. And so, I don't know, I'm I was like, I'm just going to, you know, focus on them and try to get them all. And then I screwed up the schedule. Right. So um, the person next week is a former um, special forces uh, was in the army, did 26 years, has, I mean, like you were talking about fanboying. Like I, when I met him, I was like, Oh my goodness, you were like, and he was a medic too. So, oh, cool. uh, that's, you know, that was like, we, I, uh, significantly just what he did and his job and his training level and all that kind of stuff. It's just, he is, I can't wait to talk to him. So, and that's next week. <laughs> so, but he is also part of the libertarian party and he's, just it it's going to be a good interview so i guess that's what i'll do you want to give up who it is or do you want it to be a surprise yeah what's that do you want to do you want to tell who it is or do you want to make it a surprise oh bob seifert he's uh out in western minnesota i don't actually know what city maybe crookston something you know like that but yeah yeah. he's, he's it's going to be a good interview yeah he's a really interesting guy too uh we've only met a couple of times but uh i've i've always enjoyed talking to him and he bought my hot sauce at the at the auction which uh oh, i still nice. owe him like a couple of whiskey glasses that came with it that broke in shipping so uh, i hope i see him soon anyway um all right great well let's just leave it there rebecca thank you so much for for filling in for the guest uh and next week i'm not going to be here so you might be on your own um if you are great if you're not we'll find somebody else I, i'm going to be i'm going to be on vacation so a much needed vacation. I've only been in this role for a couple of weeks already. I'm just pulling my hair out. Um, So great. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you to the, to the few people who jumped in the chat, Kevin, especially. Um, We will see you in a week until then. Keep living free. Thanks.